Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Today, joined for a second time by David Smith. Third time. Do third timers get a jacket? Is this like a a Saturday Night Live scenario? You need to talk to Steve Wittart, who I think is like a five or a six timer uh, and probably is upset with me that I don't have any sort of token of appreciation. I, I need he's, one. He's your Alec Baldwin, man. <laughs> That's right. You, you rely on him when you need him. Yeah, absolutely. I would imagine that while the rest of us are, are scrambling to come up with storylines during the offseason without cars on track, I think I saw you allude to this in, in something you wrote. The offseason is actually a pretty fertile time at Motorsports <laughs> Analytics because you have all these numbers to crunch and process from 2017 as you get ready for 2018, right? I love the offseason. For, yeah. for understand my point of view, uh, I'm dealing with round numbers for the first time in 10 months. Uh, you can make logical assessments and evaluations at that point. And look, I mean, you know, as a writer, if you uh, pen something that has a shelf life of two days and then facts change, uh, it's a bummer. So it this is this is a time that I look forward to because I feel like I can really bury myself in the evaluation and make that available to my subscribers. Actually, before we get into this, I should probably just give you a chance to plug the website and tell people what it's about. And all of these posts that you've done recently, I think, would be the framework for what we talk about today. So I'll just give you a chance to put in the shout out for yourself. Of course, I appreciate that. Motorsportsanalytics.com is a hub for auto racing statistics and analysis, stat savvy articles uh, for those that are analytically inclined, takes the the data that drives NASCAR every day, tries to make sense of it. There's stories and the numbers. I look forward to telling them. And the methodology is you review every stock car race pretty fastidiously. You study them in great detail in terms of restarts. There's a lot of video watching. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you watch every race like three times, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. So the, so a two-month break is also a nice, a nice mental <laughs> respite. Apologies to those that adore the Snowball Derby and the Chili Bowl and the Anaheim Supercross, but I, I've I've got to I got to take a breather. I got to step away and come Daytona, I'll be ready to watch more film. But it's everything. It's film. It's data, and try to make light of what what we learn. So you take the the film that you watch, and then you combine that with loop data and mm-hmm. everything you get from NASCAR, and the the signature category that you have is peer. Correct. Which is performance in equal... Production and equal equipment production, rating. Yes. Production and equal equipment rating, which is essentially like a... Is it sort of like a wins above replacement type category for 
for racing for NASCAR? It is. Okay. It's a separator. It, it the the best uh, the best way I can describe it is if we were to I rock the entire NASCAR landscape and it was forty identically prepared cars. What can we expect? What is the driver truly responsible for getting out of his equipment? Uh, and that also can be used to uh, to ascertain uh, team performance as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a heavy emphasis on the website of green flag pit cycles and crew chiefing strategy. Um, so I think it, it it's an interesting look. I don't know that it's provided anywhere else, but if your listeners are so inclined, they can stop by motorsportsanalytics.com and and read a few articles. A lot of great data there as well, but we're going to be primarily talking about David's writing. I think you provide a little bit of a counter narrative to the conventional wisdom, which we're going to start with the Matt Kenseth situation. Eric Jones last year as the new and sadly now defunct second car at Furniture Row Racing was one of the 12 most productive drivers in that peer rating. So that we'll, we'll talk about Matt Kenseth first. 2017 was Kenseth's fourth consecutive season with a minus surplus passing value, meaning he passed worse than expected from an average driver with an identical average running position. It was also his first year in which he was a below average restarter. Um, And unfortunately for him, it came in the first year of the stage racing era where restarting ability might now be the most coveted driving skill. And, you know, I I know your, your listeners can write off stats is saying what assuming it looks this way on paper but but that that inability to restart manifested for Kenseth late in races mm-hmm. uh he averaged an 11.9 place finish in races without late restarts in races with at least one his average fell to 16.4 in races with at least two it fell to 20.3 okay so Uh, Kenseth was at a point where he struggled to create track position. That, that's, that's not always a deal killer. A a driver can rely on a fast race car to do amazing things. But in the instance, the rare instance in which Joe Gibbs racing shows up to a racetrack, uh, and they've missed on the setup, they'd like to lean on the driver's ability to go out and create that track position. Now it's, Circle back to Eric Jones. As a 21-year-old rookie, he was the fourth best passer among front runners. And he was an above-average restarter. He is cheaper. His best years are ahead of him. Right. I'd make the same decision. This was a no-brainer, really. Uh, This is – Joe Gibbs Racing wants the future to be now. I think it's only appropriate that this transaction transpires right now. And And – Okay, so I'll say this. I, I because I'm buried in data and race watching, I don't get to read many NASCAR opinion pieces uh, as I should. But I read yours about Matt Kenseth. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll I'll respectfully disagree with you on this. Not that Kenseth didn't deserve to go out on his own. I do believe he did. Mm-hmm. I want to argue that he did go out on his own. And still is, and he's anything but powerless. So I want you to consider this. Kenseth was hired by Joe Gibbs Racing during his age 40 season. Statistically, age 39 is a NASCAR driver's peak 
production year. He signed a five-year contract for a lot of money and received a rare upgrade in equipment and team environment. The fact that in his decline, he received everything he conceivably could have wanted bucks the desires of most markets. The decline phase happened as you would expect. Seven of his 15 wins with Joe Gibbs Racing occurred in that first season. At 45, to want another, anybody can want another deal, but to expect another contract based on statistical averages Mm -hmm. is somewhat unheard of. So I would argue that going out, if your retirement tour is the one that he had with Joe Gibbs Racing, that's pretty good. Would Matt Kenseth, at age 45, after an 18-year career in which he did financially well for himself, risk his life with premium motorsports right. to prove a point? Right. I think that's what made that decision easier for him to step away, right? I, I it... think it's – I think, yes, it's, a, it's an economic stalemate, but I think it's fairly reasonable. Yeah. It's – I don't know that there was uh, – and look, I – I've I've seen the the social media responses whenever whenever Eric Jones takes a picture of, of his of his new driving suit like poor kid but he's faced with responses <laughs> like oh man I'd prefer Matt Kenseth in that car <laughs> well look it's Matt Kenseth was a significantly better driver than the average forty five year old but you just have to understand that that isn't feasible going forward the NASCAR fan base. I wouldn't say that it's in an uproar, but it questions when team owners are shedding salary of older drivers to take on young drivers. In a vacuum, that's always the best business practice. And I wrote my transaction analyses on my website last month. I didn't point out a bad spending of money. I don't think there was one. I might disagree with some personnel that was hired, but there wasn't anything egregious that a team could get uh, could get out of if they, in fact, made that mistake. Teams are finally conducting good business. I don't question anything that's occurred. I think perhaps uh, our years of, of bucking uh, national economic trends and holding still on these sponsorship asks that were sky high when the sponsors we were bringing into the sport were trying to adjust to a post-recession world, we finally hit that. I, drivers, unfortunately, are the, the first casualty. Right. Well, because they were the, the biggest target, right? Because of their okay, yeah, seven-figure, so, eight-figure salaries in some cases. And Okay. So I, did, I think last time we we're here, did you champion the idea that the Joe Gibbs Racing Quartet of Hamlin, Bush, Edwards. Kenseth, and Edwards was the greatest could have been right? driver roster ever assembled right okay so that that's a pretty good one and i and, and i'll i'll throw on the table uh hendrick's uh iteration with jimmy johnson jeff gordon dale jr and mark martin i'll say that was i would assume that was the most expensive mm-hmm. roster of drivers w- what percentage of total revenue did those four people earn right. was it 40 percent? right was it 50 percent? and for Hendrick, which is this big machine, this organization with more than 600 employees, is that even good business to allocate that much money to four people? They won championships with Jimmy Johnson. So I'm sure that there's no uh, emotional regret. But looking back, was the super team ever 
an idea, uh, an ideal uh, spending of money. Mm-hmm. Well, when the recession hit in 2008, I remember that that was a big discussion in NASCAR team circles was, hey, the, the problem right now with team budgets is that that number you decided, David, I mean, 40% is going to one person. <laughs> and sure. that was just an unsustainable model in, in some regard. And uh, yeah, it's interesting to see that all these years later, nearly a decade later, I think it's finally caught up. And maybe this is the year that we actually saw the market correction that had been forecast in 2008. But because of sponsor contracts, you had that contractual kind of protection that teams had where they knew they were guaranteed mm-hmm. a certain amount of money from, in some cases, many years to come yeah. that allowed them not to have to deal with this this issue until recently. And I hadn't even thought of it that way. You make a great point that Ken's at signing with JGR in 2013, when he was turning 41 that year, that's a great point. I mean, essentially, he got his five-year farewell tour. We just didn't see it. I think when juxtaposed, though, and he made this point with the fact that Dale Jr. had his vaunted farewell tour, Tony yeah. Stewart had had his the year, year before, yeah. it was sort of just part of the entire career arc of Matt Kenseth that he was always the guy who never, I don't think, ever fully got his due. He's going to be a Hall of Fame driver. Oh, sure. Yeah. But th- things just never quite worked out exactly how he planned. But I mean, you make a great point. I mean, in some ways, if you look at the last five seasons, he did sort of get his exit in a really respected, graceful And furthermore, manner. he might be the last driver to receive a deal like that. Right. That I mean, we might look at Kenseth's career 20 years from now. That might be more than a footnote. That might be one of the the top bullet points we talk about is that Kenseth was so revered and respected. He received a healthy contract and long term deal when drivers don't don't right. get that anymore. Right. And right. And as you said, allowed him to then make that choice of I'm not going yeah. to drive for a mid pack, lower pack team. I've set myself up for life with this quality of life. And, and there was considerable risk. Right. For Joe Gibbs Racing to do that, because remember, they gave up Joey Logano, right. who was younger at the time, cheaper, under team control. And if they had him now, they would be in very good shape. They wanted to compete for a championship with Kenseth. They did, especially that first year. But that's that's almost a testament to the way Kenseth is viewed. I don't know that that's, uh, that's going to be a point of view that exists uh, much more going forward. And as you mentioned, I mean, other teams seem to be embracing the philosophy, whatever you want to call it, the approach that Joe Gibbs Racing took to Eric Jones over Matt Kenseth and saying, hey, if the future, if we know what the future is going to be, how about the future is now? Like, why wait? And I think if Kenseth could have had his druthers, the the one thing he would have liked to have seen was, he actually talked about this on record a couple of times, why not allow me to drive uh, the five car for a year or two and then let a William Byron slide in and and be that bridge driver and so look i mean you and i don't have access to uh the hendrick motorsports financial ledgers but just a shot in the dark is they were trying to shed money reportedly you you, you're one of the ones on the uh on the beat for this lowe's nationwide insurance and the napa are are all up after after 2018 so there isn't long-term money they can guarantee i don't know that they were real players for brad kozlowski and furthermore they they got rid of 
Casey Kane. I mean, if, if they wanted an easy transition, they had the guy already in house to do that. And they made a pretty shrewd business move that I can't disagree with. I think Kane has value to a race team and his ability to pass. Maybe just the time, the time is right. Let's talk Kane for a minute, David. Okay. You also wrote about him. And again, a great, I think, contrarian way of looking at things. I think myself in the pack journalism world of NASCAR media looked at his win at the Brickyard and thought, oh, well, will this give Rick Hendrick some pause? Obviously, we knew at that point that there was serious consideration about do they want to put William Byron in that car after just one year in Xfinity, one year in trucks? Are they just going to fast track him and just call the Casey King experiment over? Yeah. You know, we, we, we gave it a was good it, run. Two weeks later, they pulled the trigger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. But, you know, credit to Hendrick Motorsports for not being influenced by recency bias. Yeah. They, they made the decision and they stuck with it. You make this great point that where we all thought the Brickyard win might have helped his candidacy for staying at Hendrick Motorsports, as you put it, it might have actually hurt him because the team thought that he could still do well as much as he had you know a very mediocre 2017 season you know myriad reasons and certainly Hendrick Motorsports didn't have the greatest year as a whole that team was in a slump but as you pointed out maybe the reason that Hendrick let Kane go was they were aware of hey performance bonuses and if we're better next year Casey could post better results and we've lost Mm -hmm. two big sponsors here in Great Clips and Farmers and in a sense like that Brickyard win might have shown hey he can still do it two restarts at Indianapolis he can out dual break his last can get a win we're not sure if we want him yeah on our team and if we know byron is the future and we know that he's going to come at a pittance versus what casey kane is making it just makes more economic sense even though he might be showing that he can still perform at a high level at times it might not really be what the team needs at the moment with yeah and, and, at the, and, and, and none of kane's sponsors from 2017 return for 2018 so uh they would be beholden to a contract that pays out incentives uh with money they don't have right (laughs) right so yeah i mean it it almost that was the decision that they had to make i think it was their belief in casey kane that led to that decision he might be too good for where we are right now and we can't afford that and we've got this kid who isn't going to cost nearly as much and we know he's the future let's put him in the car now and maybe he can deliver results at a similar level to kane but we know it's not going to cost us as much. Well, I think the world of Byron, uh, I think um, once once my top 75 prospects comes out, I think that will that will be very clear. But he'll be 20 years old next year. Uh, that age is typically uh, an age in which Cup Series drivers stink. So, <laughs> so look, ex- expectations need to be low, but one year isn't going to forecast his future, right? I I think he'll he'll be fine. If you're if you're a Byron fan or a Hendrick fan, just Go through the growing pains. That's this is this is the the foundation. So it, it's it's going to get rocky, but well, I, I think that'll be okay. Well, he's certainly shown the last two years to be highly adaptable, right? Into into whatever circuit. And granted, Cup is a different level mm-hmm. than Xfinity and Trucks, but and certainly to you know win the championship in yeah. Xfinity as a rookie and and to really deservedly should have won the championship in Truck as a rookie. I mean that sort of answers itself. One thing I want to talk to you about, Byron, David, you, you mentioned this concept of creating track position, and you talked about it with Kenseth as well, that mm-hmm. he didn't create track position as well the last couple of years, and that was a factor in JDR's decision. You said that Kane can create track position better than Byron simply based off of experience. Byron's yes. a rookie. What does that mean? Is creating track position just about not getting snookered on restarts and just always being in a position where you sort of protect what you have and then sometimes gain 
when opportunities arise? Well, okay. So an entire race is, yes, it's a competition against 39 other cars, but it's also a competition internally to retain the track position you have and gain more. Sometimes that can be attained by uh, a car's sheer speed. You can get all the track position you need in qualifying and never leave the top five. You can get it through pit stops, green flag pit cycles. Restarts are now, with stages, the most vulnerable part of a race that a driver is going to experience. And the singular moment where there will be the most position changes. We saw last year that there were restarts that negated any work by pit crews on the stops that led into that. Uh, There have been drivers in the past that succeeded in fast race cars and having clean air. Carl Edwards, statistically, was not ever really a mover when the chips were down, but it takes talent to go fast on a race car. It takes elite talent to make a fast race car even faster. Case in point, you can give me the number 78 car from Furniture Row right now. I will finish last, probably wreck going into turn one on lap one and have the worst peer of all time. The speed of the car does not matter in that instance. It takes talent to go fast in a race car. We lose sight of that. It sounds pretty ridiculous, (laughs) Um, but it's true. So there are drivers that can rely on that to get their track position. Or there are drivers that are particularly crafty and efficient in how they pass, when they pass, and drivers that are extremely good restarters. Kurt Busch was unemployed for two months and annually one of the best restarters you'll find. He had value. It His value probably increases in the stage racing era where there are more restarts. Uh, that, that might be two months too long for him to be, uh, to be in a, a, a free agent. Luckily, he landed with the same team, but there's value to a driver and how they go about accumulating track position. And just to put a bow on Byron, you also pointed out that crew chief Darian Grubb, who is no stranger to being atop the pit box mm-hmm. and, and has done very well as, as a pit strategist, clinched the 2011 title for Tony Stewart with some strategy calls and won some races that way with Carl Edwards and, and with Casey Mears as well. And you think that bodes well for, for a young driver like Byron? Yeah, so I think... Crew chiefs, uh, evaluating crew chiefs is like evaluating managers in baseball. Like it, it, there's a lot of subjectivity in it. And there's such a difference in opinion on what makes a good crew chief. In my opinion, it's just answer the simple question. Does the crew chief complement the driver? And if the answer is yes, then the crew chief's probably doing a really good job. Darian Grubb over the years, has, he's been given a mixed bag of driving talent. He won with Casey Mears. He won with Carl Edwards. He won races thanks to pretty ingenious pit strategy. And I wrote this. I don't. I respect the work Grubb has done, so I don't want this to come off as crass, but he's probably a starter crew chief for Byron. They might upgrade later on once Byron develops a more reliable ability to create track position on his own. But a first crew chief... That's a really good one. William Byron's going to be in good shape. Grubb is there to ensure that that team doesn't flounder as Byron is going through his firsts. You know, restarting next to Kurt Busch is nothing like restarting next to Blake Cook. And this is going to be, 2018 is going to be a really big transition for him. The age 39 magic number, mm-hmm. which Brad Kozlowski has also alluded to. I think he is a reader of David Smith's Motorsports Analytics. 
he brought that up when he was asked about contract negotiations by the media last year, that 39 is the prime of a driver's career. Casey Kane turns 38 this year. Going to a team like Levine Family Racing, can he be peaking, even though he's coming off some really disappointing seasons at Hendrick? Is it possible for him to put all that aside and just based off history that, hey, 39 is when a driver really everything clicks? Every driver's different. We've seen some weird stuff in the past. Uh, Casey Kane had a bizarre career in that he he started with a bang. I mean, his his initial seasons in the Cup Series, boy, he sure looked like a, a Hall of Famer early on. I mean, maybe similar to Ryan Newman, is those those first years were bountiful. Uh, but he's had a rough go of it of late. I don't believe that he's fallen off a cliff. He has been worse than the average driver his age. But even then how careers typically progress. I think it's reasonable to expect a better season this year and certainly in 2019 than the last six years. Uh, I think it would be a, it, it could be a career high point. It might not necessarily be uh, the best year of his, of his career. Harry Gant's best year of his career was when he was 51, right? Like, so there's weird wonky instances but I think it's a good bet. Kane has a lot to offer. He can pass on intermediate tracks, which is the most prevalent track type in the series. That team, LFR, hasn't had a driver that's been able to do that. And I don't know that they have the speed that Kane is... Well, I certainly know they don't have the speed Kane is, has been used to in years past. Uh, they're going to rely on what is probably Kane's best singular talent, and that's his ability to, to pass cars in the middle of the field. Kane does well with traffic, still does. That hasn't changed. A couple other transaction analysis that you did. Two drivers whose fates were somewhat intertwined here. Eric Almirola, of course, going to the number 10 at Stuart Haas Racing. Darrell Wallace Jr. taking Almirola's spot in the number 43 at Richard Petty Motorsports. Something really interesting about Almirola that I think you pointed out, David, you feel as if, even though his best year was 2014 when he wins at Daytona and makes the playoffs, you feel as if 2015 and last year, 2017, Almirola actually punched above his weight. You'll probably have the numbers in front of you. I don't, but he, he scored double the amount of top 15 finishes that his running position would have projected him mm -hmm. for last year. That's overachievement in some regard. Do consider the race team. He's upgrading. His superficial stat line of top fives, top tens, uh, and average finish is just going to increase by nature. Stuart Haas supplied the fastest race car in the final 10 races last year. They have an ability to conjure speed that most teams don't. I don't think they have a weak crew chief in the bunch. That's both last year with Tony Gibson and, and this year uh, moving forward with what we know of uh, John Klausmeyer. They're set up to do a lot of good things. Almirola is going to benefit solely from the upgrade in working environment. So even though he punched above his weight class, he could be a candidate for breakout in the normal way we evaluate drivers and teams. Could be a playoff contender. Darrell Wallace Jr., 24 years old. I think what you wrote there is that the numbers can't really tell us so much about him because mm -hmm. he obviously doesn't have a full season and cup under his belt. And really he hasn't really been a full-time driver for, for a couple of years. So the, is the jury still out or what, what do the numbers tell us about Bubba? Uh, Wallace has had a career dating back to his, his time in the grassroots levels of just fits and starts. And I have to look back literally one year, he was the top driver in the KNN East and the next season he was one of the worst. 
uh, just from a production standpoint. I don't think anything changed. It was just that's sort of the, the ebb and flow of his career. Now, an important point about what RPM had to do versus what other uh, these other teams that made transactions had to do. Richard Petty Motorsports didn't ask to make this trans- uh, transaction. Other teams did. It was their own volition. Mm-hmm. They, RPM had to react to losing Al Marola and replacing him with uh, a cost-prohibitive substitute with some high upside. I think Daryl Wallace fits that bill. Uh, I don't know that we understand the full scope of his driving abilities. He had terrific restart numbers in his uh, during his time in the Xfinity series. He passed reliably. He actually profiles similar to Almarola. So I don't know that a, that there's going to be necessarily a drop off for them. Maybe the new alliance with Richard Childress Racing helps. They are privy to some notes that they didn't have in the past. And there's some new ideas uh, coming forth. That's an interesting case. Um, I I believe RPM did a, a, about as well as they could, considering they never really wanted to make that transaction. They certainly didn't want to lose a, a primary sponsor in Smithfield Foods. But Wallace is, I think that's a fine gamble to make. It, even if it if it doesn't pan out, I don't think... Moffat and everyone at RPM can be blamed for for rolling the dice. You do also these uh, SWAT analysis, SWAT standing for strength, weakness, opportunity, threat. Yes. You've done three so far this year, RCR being one, also Penske and Hendrick. Let's just talk RCR. You made the point that they've pretty much doubled down on what they're good at. Yes. Which is pit strategy. Yes. And pit crews, right? So rare in any industry that uh, an organization is so aware of its weaknesses. And in RCR's case... They've got what they got in terms of driving talent. I don't. I don't think that that's uh, going to change. And in terms forward. of cars, in terms of aero and manufacturer support. Yeah, and and, be... and that's important to note yeah. that it's it has been trending in a negative direction uh, where they they rank on the speed charts year after year. So hey, look, uh, uh, applaud them, Luke Lambert, dating back to 2013 when he crew chief Jeff Burton to now has been. Uh, just a, a font of track position through effective green flag pit cycle strategy. This past year, we saw uh, Justin Alexander, who uh, was relieved of his duties when he was a crew chief of Paul Menard. Um, at, at the time, he was demoted, uh, had some of the worst retention percentages on green flag pit cycles in the series. Had a very good year. Won the Coca-Cola 600 on pit strategy. Put Austin Dillon in the playoffs. Give that man a bonus. That's that's pretty good. Um, they're dabbling in outsourced decision sciences, working with quantitative an, uh, analysts. Um, and I applaud that. That is so far removed from uh, just the workaday realm of NASCAR teams. They're thinking outside the box. Right. They have to because... It's just the, the traditional way isn't working. Team Penske also was the subject of one of your SWAT analysis. And you say there that the strength for that team is the drivers. Yes. It's figuring out how to maximize those strengths. And surprisingly, if you look at last year, you've mentioned it, Stuart Haas Racing had the fastest car 
in the playoffs with uh-huh. Harvick based on that was a numbers. Ford. And it was a Ford. Yes. And yet the linchpin of the Ford stable that you would think would be would be Penske didn't really do as well. And we heard obviously Brad Kozlowski voicing some concerns about that last year. I don't think Kozlowski's a dummy. I think he used the, the bully pulpit to politic for a rules change because eh, why not? What, what yeah. what's what's the worst that could come of it? Right. Um I think the notion that Toyota has a stranglehold on speed, that's a bit far-fetched. I believe infrastructure and the system of of a race team, the engineering environment, matters more than aerodynamics, body type, what have you. That was a really big gamble by Stuart Haas. Harvick is at a point where he is, based on the average driver, in statistical decline but he's not so far removed from his peak where he can't have years like age 41 Matt Kenseth. They risked that. You know, they they gave up a car that ranked number one in speed all three years prior to 2017 to make that switch to Ford because they found it more amenable. But they risked a very good Kevin Harvick year, what possibly could have been the last good Kevin Harvick year. Wow. Credit to them that they turned it around in time for the playoffs. Harvick was exceptionally fast. He could have won the championship. What was Penske doing differently than Stuart Haas? They had, uh, Stuart Haas had success despite the manufacturer that was believed to be at a disadvantage. So what is the disconnect that leads Brad Keselowski to complain about a lack of speed? And what is keeping Joey Logano, one of the best producers in the sport, arguably one of its best drivers from the playoffs. There's a disconnect there. I don't work there. I have no idea what goes on behind closed doors, but there's something that they're going to have to figure out because their disadvantage was more self-inflicted than anything that that was in the rule book. So Harvick being the fastest over the last 10 races last season, what metric do you use to provide evidence of that? Like what's the timing and scoring data from, from the races. Look at that. You could measure the green flag speed data, uh, rank it accordingly. And over the last 10, Harvick was especially fast. Uh, I wouldn't say it was a night and day difference. He was always a top five car, but look, the difference between fifth and first in auto racing is really big. And that's something everyone's gunning for. And that's why he's one of your five championship favorites, which uh, actually also was in a, a post that David did for NASCAR.com. We yes. encourage people to, to check out his work, which is picked up there as well. So your five championship favorites for 2018, Harvick, Keselowski, Kyle Larson, Kyle Busch, Martin Truex Jr. Those are your five. Yeah, I, re- I really went out on a limb. There, <laughs> I, was, I wasn't going to give you any grief, but <laughs> yeah, no, I don't really see a dark horse among that group. No, I think, uh, look, yeah, <laughs> you, you, you don't need uh, to be analytically savvy to pick those five as possible championship contenders, but we're not going to unearth some, uh, some outsider based on last year's numbers. They were so far uh, ahead of everyone else. Even, with, even what we discussed with Keselowski, Keselowski had the fifth fastest car, the 11th fastest pit crew, and finished fourth in points. So at a superficial level, he overachieved. He doesn't need much more. He would probably like a lot more than he has. He doesn't need much more to be effective. Let's end with where things ended in 2017 for NASCAR with Martin Truex Jr. winning at Homestead Miami Speedway, winning the championship. Anything you see there with in terms of the numbers in adding a second car in 2017 and now contracting back to one car in yeah. 2018, what numbers are going to tell you about how effective furniture racing can be in trying to defend the championship? First, as it pertains to consolidation, that is a tough choice. 
people lose jobs. That's never a good thing. However, there is some silver lining that could emerge. They could be leaner and meaner, as Austin Dillon uh, referred to RCR during the NASCAR media tour. We've seen in the past teams that consolidated. RCR, I think in 2010 or 2011, consolidated from four teams to three, and Kevin Harvick's average finish position grew 11 spots. I don't think they'll miss a beat. If anything, they could be better. What should intimidate other race teams was Furniture Row's mastery of the soft-banked intermediate racetracks. Seven races at that kind of track type took place in 2017. Martin Truex won all of them. Cole Pern, Jeff Curtis, the entire brain trust at Furniture Row is operating on every cylinder. And Truex is still two years removed from his prime. He has become the driver many of us thought he would be when he won two consecutive Xfinity Series championships in his formative years. He has, over the last four years, increased his passing ability and is underrated as a restarter. He doesn't get enough credit for that. I know he lost high-profile moments to Kyle Larson. Truex can hold his own. He's going to be an 80-90% guy from the preferred groove. He'll be fine. That's going to be a very dangerous team. A number of crew members coming off the road and the potential of a spending cap I think it's a a reasonable assertion to make that culture might soon matter. If you turn your team into a destination for the best and brightest the sport has to offer, you'll be in really good shape because you will uh, appear a nice landing spot for some high-profile crew chiefs and engineers. Furniture Row has that right now. You don't hear many bad stories uh, about the internal strife happening in Denver. It's from the sounds of it, it's all good vibes. And that's not a bad goal to aspire. They are ready to be emulated in every possible way, and it'll be interesting in 2018 to see how that happens. Well, no, things really are changing. If Rocky Mountain Way means NASCAR teams actually moving to Colorado in the future. Uh, That'd be fun, yeah. (laughs) That's that's good. (laughs) Maybe we'll all relocate ourselves. David, always a pleasure having you on here. Thanks for stopping by. And again, I encourage people to check out Motorsports Analytics for uh, more of this knowledge and and more of these stats. to appear on the Ryan podcast. (laughs) Thanks, man. We appreciate David Smith for spending a morning talking stats with us. Analytics have been all the rage in professional sports the last few years, particularly professional basketball. If you like that approach applied to NASCAR, I highly encourage you to check out David Smith's Motorsports Analytics website. Not only does it have reams of data, but it also offers some incisive, sharp writing by David. Beyond just being a stat guru, David is plugged into the NASCAR industry. He has sources at many teams. And so you will get some informed insider coverage. Always great to have that insight on the podcast. It had been a year since we had David on here. We will try to have him on during the 2018 season. This is the first of three planned podcasts this week as NASCAR returns to Daytona National Speedway to begin the 2018 season. So stay tuned for new episodes of the NASCAR NBC podcast Wednesday and Friday this week. And next week, we will have our annual conversation with the defending Daytona 500 winner. I spoke recently with Kurt Busch at Stuart Haas Racing, and that will be out Wednesday, February 14th. I'm working on having some more guests during Speed Weeks as well. NBC Sports has the Olympics this month and also has a new podcast as well called The Podium that will provide insider coverage of 17 days of competition in South Korea. The first episode is up and examines the how and why behind the 25 tropical countries that are competing in the Winter Olympics. 
You can subscribe to The Podium wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. We, of course, would ask you to do the same for the NASCAR and NBC podcast, which also is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. And if you have any feedback, please send it to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.